Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, and welcome to episode 68 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today, we're gonna have Rose Lounsbury on the show. Rose is a keynote speaker, an Amazon best-selling author, a simplicity coach, and a still sane mom of triplets. We'll give Rose a bit of a longer introduction later. Before we get to the meat of the episode, let's do our review of the week. This one comes in from Curtis WH, who left a review on Apple Podcasts. Curtis wrote, great pod with good interviews. I enjoy hearing the interviews and different perspectives. Definitely should give it a listen. Curtis, thanks for the kind words. If you're hearing this, Curtis, shoot me an email, jesse at bestinterest.blog, and I'll get you hooked up with some cool best interest swag. Before we get to Rose today, I wanted to share a few thoughts on the stuff we fill our lives with, the stuff we choose to spend money on, that kind of topic. And I thought we could start with something called bimodal spending. It's an idea I had a few years ago. I started to adopt it in my own life, and maybe I can convince you to adopt it in your life too. Now, first things first, let's define bimodal. Out there in the real world, it's common to see normal distributions. Uh, Normal distribution occurs when data clumps around the average, and then a few data points are dispersed out at the extremes. You've seen normal distributions before. Some people call them bell curves. When we talk about things like standard deviation, that usually applies to normal distributions. Many of us are also familiar with uniform distributions. A uniform distribution where data is spread evenly among a range. You know, if we asked a group of 100 people to pick their favorite number between 1 and 10, we'd expect a relatively uniform distribution with picks pretty much. 10 people are going to pick every number on average. Now, A bimodal distribution, as the name implies, as you might have heard in the name itself, it has two modes, bimodal. It has two distinct peaks, which often occur at opposite ends of a range. So a bimodal distribution, if you were to graph it out, it looks like almost like two mountain peaks with a valley in between. So, okay, let's get back to this concept called bimodal spending. My creative conception is that we should apply a bimodal distribution to our spending habits. Bimodal spending, it asks you to say either hell yes or no to major expenses. You either go whole hog or you go not at all. There's no middle ground. Now, keep in mind, the significance of saying hell yes, it fades away if you say it too much. You you can't say hell yes to everything. So you need to think of the things you enjoy. If you're like me, that list is pretty long. Food, travel, hiking, sports, music, reading, blogging, spending time with friends and family, fostering dogs. There are a lot of things that I like. You're probably the same. If I'm not careful and I graft out my passions in in some sort of XY plot, everything would seem like it's passionate. I I would have so many hobbies, so many passions, so many things I could or would spend my time and money on. I could spend thousands of dollars on each of those pursuits that I listed before. I could buy lots of stuff. I could go on lots of adventures. But is all of that stuff worth it? That's the question to ask. And now I say no. It's not all worth it. Only some things are worth it. We know, for example, that luxurious spending, it brings less fulfillment as we spend more. That's called the fulfillment curve. Why? Well, one of the limiting factors is time. 
we don't have the time to devote lots of hours to all of our various pursuits and passions, we need to pick and choose. If I were to try everything, I would spread myself too thin. And being spread thin isn't enjoyable. It's not optimal. So that's why I'm reimagining my passion graph, so to speak, to look like a bimodal distribution. On the one hand, I have the true and few passions that I absolutely love. And on the other end, I have all of those passions that I'm just saying, even though they're cool, they don't quite meet my bar. And therefore, I'm not going to devote any time to them at all. If something is hell yes, I'll devote the time and money to it. But if it's only kind of fun or an occasional pastime, then I want to prune it. I want to get rid of it from my budget and from my schedule. I want to focus my fun money on the hell yes passions. I want to route all that was not life or eliminate that which doesn't light my fire. If you're a Henry David Thoreau fan, we can play that quote from that poem right now. I'll now read the traditional opening message by society member Henry David Thoreau. I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. I'll second that. <laughs> to put to rout all that was not life, and not when I had come to die, discover that I had not lived. So how does that translate into a bimodal spending distribution, you ask? I want my dollars to go towards either one, basic life needs, or two, hell yes, passion activities. If you were to graph it out, and I can include in the show notes the article where I show this graph, you would see a, a peak of spending when it comes to simple survival, the necessities of life, the food, the housing, utilities. You would see a pretty deep valley of spending or lack of spending on things that are kind of fun or somewhat interesting or nice to have. And then you'd see a second big spike in spending when it comes to my biggest passions, either the bare necessities or the true marrow of life. That's what I'm going to spend time and money on, but not much in between. Anything in the middle of the graft will bring me very few units of fulfillment per dollar spent. I want the dollars I spend to do good. Sometimes that's through charity, giving to others, contributing to group activities. But if I am spending on myself, I want to squeeze out as much fulfillment as I can. There's a gentle reminder. You might have heard this quote before. Look at all the stuff around you. That stuff used to be money and that money used to be time. I don't want to spend money or my time on average stuff. I'll pay for the necessities. And then after that, I want my spending to make me say, hell yes. Bimodal spending is a rehash of the Pareto principle, also known as the 80-20 rule. Focus 80% of your fun spending on your favorite 20% of activities. Or you can push that ratio even further. Spend 95% of your fun money on your top 5% of activities. The other 95% of your fun activities, spend as little there as you can. They aren't hell yes activities. They're milk toast at best. They'll only pull resources away from the activities you truly enjoy. Whatever the ratio you choose, you know, 80-20, 90-10, it's amusing that Pareto rears his insightful head yet again. And some of you might recognize that bimodal spending is reminiscent of Ramit Sethi's rich life idea. To quote Ramit, living a rich life means having the ability to spend my time and money on the areas that are important to me. Now, how does Ramit suggest you pursue your rich life? Simple. He tells you to spend extravagantly on the things you love and cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. That is bimodal spending. Categorize your pursuits as things you love or as things you don't, or you can create a bimodal passion graph. 
Spend extravagantly on the right side of your passion graph and cut mercilessly on the left side of your graph. Ramit Sethi is a bimodal spender. Now, for a quick anecdote, friend of the best interest, Martin, he and I have talked about this before. He loves travel. He loves fine dining. Those things are his passions. And that's why it made sense for him to spend two weeks in Lima, Peru and plan a meal at Central, considered to be one of the best restaurants in the world. It's a once in a lifetime experience. The memories of that trip still bringing him joy today. Now that is a hell yes. My hell yes spending lies elsewhere. I'll buy, say, a $200 pair of hiking boots or a top-of-the-line laptop to support the best interest. But I might not go to Lima, Peru. I might not eat at Central. I might not buy new golf clubs, even though I do like golf. But another friend of the blog, Mark, I know he absolutely loves golf. He plays as much as he can. He's traveled to Ireland to play historic courses. He plays in the rain and the snow because you've got to make the golf season count here in Rochester, New York. So new clubs and a course membership, they help Mark live his Ramit Sethi rich life. Golf is a hell yes for Mark. Different strokes for different folks. We each get to create our own passion graph and plan our bimodal spending accordingly. Even down in the bare necessities categories like food and housing, I found that bimodal spending helps me feel more fulfilled. Cars, for example. I don't love cars. I don't want or need an expensive car. I want to spend as little on cars as I'm able to. I plan to drive my Toyota into the ground and then continue to pay for a car that's more function over form. So for groceries, I love cooking and baking for people. I want to spend extra money to make sure my pizza has the highest quality cheese. I want to spend money on imported vanilla extract for my cookies. But for the average meal on the average day, I'm relatively Spartan. All I need for breakfast were a few eggs and an English muffin. 95% of my meals are simple. 5% are extravagant and nice. So that's mostly no, with a little bit of hell yes. At the time I put bimodal spending as an idea down on paper, my laptop was a five-year-old HP and the cooling fan, it sounded a little bit like a weed eater. It sounded like a disgusting metallic engine. It was not a good sounding laptop. It was probably a $250 model way past its prime. But the best interest in working on this project was one of my big passions. So to support the blog and the podcast, I was saving up for a new MacBook. And that's the MacBook that I'm recording this episode into right now. I waited and waited and waited and on buying that new laptop because I, I didn't quite have a hell yes reason to spend that much money. But the best interest made me realize I do have that reason. So I budgeted for a few months to save up money for that laptop. And then once I had the money saved, I pulled the trigger. And the last one, dining out. My wife, at the time I wrote this article, she was just my girlfriend. She loves dining out. And I certainly enjoy it too. It's a great way that we spend time together. We've started saving our dining out dollars for hell yes dining experiences. So we forego a few average dining out experiences and we save those dollars for a more unique and memorable experience. I've had my lifetime share of $8 hamburgers. They're fine, but I'd rather save my dollars to widen my palate's horizons, if you will. It's quality over quantity. It's that kind of decision. But speaking of hamburgers, let's switch topics to something called the McDonald's test. The McDonald's test is a simple way to ask yourself, Am I really enjoying the fruits of my labor? While chatting with a client last year, we covered a vital financial planning topic, spending his retirement savings. It's challenging for many retirees to switch from a saving mindset to a spending mindset. This client, quite plainly, hadn't started spending at all. So off the cuff, I asked him, humor me, what's your favorite meal? 
And he answered, it's got to be hamburger and fries. So I replied, well, what's the best burger you've had recently? What's your go-to hamburger spot here in Rochester? And he said, honestly, I'm pretty easy. McDonald's is just fine for me. And at that response, I paused. And I thought to myself, well, perhaps it's a frugality decision. Frugality, certainly a tenant of the best interest. I'm never going to begrudge somebody for including finances in their decision making. Or maybe he chose McDonald's. Maybe it was a flavor decision. I'll admit, a picture of a Big Mac and fries makes me hungry. But the burger spectrum is pretty vast. And I'm sure that McDonald's has rivals. And wouldn't he want to explore what's out there? Or maybe for this client, McDonald's was just a simplicity decision. In the same way that Steve Jobs wore the same outfit every day to reduce decision fatigue, maybe my client decided on McDonald's and that's that. He doesn't have to make any more burger decisions in his life. Trying to be respectful, I asked him if he'd tried other burger places in Rochester. And he said, eh, not really. Now, I knew already that he liked driving his old school car. So I replied to him. I said, you know, Mr. Client, if you wanted to, you could do something like plan one trip per week to the most renowned burger joints in upstate New York. You could drive new roads, try new fries, take notes along the way. Now, that's just one example of something you could do. My bigger point is you've saved money your whole life and now you get to spend it. And the way I see it, you might as well spend on your favorite things. I want to make sure that you know, as a client, what I know as your financial planner. You can eat all the McDonald's you want, but you could also afford any burger and fries you want. That question, it turned out, was the creation of the McDonald's test. Since that meeting, about once per quarter, calendar quarter, I get an email like this. We took routes 5 and 20 from Lima to Skinny Atlas, and then we went north into Syracuse. Final destination, Ale and Angus. Fantastic burger. I can see how they've gotten all those accolades. 10 out of 10. You and Kelly should definitely go. It was a rainy weekend, but still nice to drive through some of those old cities I hadn't been to in years. Waterloo, Auburn, etc. So, listeners, if you're big savers, that's great. But eventually, you should run the McDonald's test on your life. Ask yourself. Are you at least spending money on the stuff that brings you joy? Are you remembering both sides of bimodal spending? If you just want McDonald's all the time, fantastic. Don't let me turn you off. But if you want to take that road trip to Ale and Angus, and you can afford to take that day trip to Ale and Angus for that 10 out of 10 burger, why aren't you doing it? Are you just Big Macking through the rest of your life? Or are you enjoying the fruits and the meats and the potatoes of your labor? That's the McDonald's test. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Did you know my written blog, The Best Interest, was nominated for 2022 Personal Finance Blog of the Year, and it's been highlighted in The Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, and on CNBC? I love writing, especially when that writing is to share financial education, and I usually write one or two articles per week. You can read them all at bestinterest.blog. Again, the web address is bestinterest.blog. Check it out. So with that, let's bring on Rose Lounsbury onto the podcast. Rose is a keynote speaker, an Amazon best-selling author, simplicity coach, and the still sane mom of triplets. Rose helps overwhelmed people create open spaces in their homes, in their workspaces, and more importantly, in their minds by letting go of the excess stuff that gets in the way. Rose, thanks for joining us today. And I thought we could start today's conversation with towels. Uh, All right. <laughs> how, how many towels do you own? 
why am I even asking that question in the first place? Because I know our listeners are going to be a little confused. And then what are some of the big lessons that our listeners can take away from such an innocuous question? Yeah. So I'm going to guess the reason you're asking that question is because I did a TEDx talk called, how many towels do you need? (laughs) And unbeknownst to me, that's a question people are very curious about because it is the only thing I've ever done that's gone even somewhat semi-viral of sorts. I have almost 600,000 views on it, which is crazy Mm -hmm. to me. But it's interesting because towels are something that everybody has. And to answer your question, the first question, I have two towels per person in my house and we are a family of five. So there's 10 bath towels in our house for the humans in the house. My dog actually has more than two towels because (laughs) he ends up with all the old towels. And so when we just forget to throw them away. So, So Rudy gets more than two, I guess. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because when I started my minimalism and simplicity journey, I started with my towels. And in retrospect, the reason that I started by looking at my towels and asking questions about them was because it was a really easy place to start. And so anybody listening who might want to simplify or declutter their life, just know you probably have towels and that might be a great place to start because it's not emotional. We don't have memories usually closely wrapped up with towels like we might have with pictures and letters and cards and that sorts of stuff Mm. or gifts that people have given us. So towels are an easy place to begin. And I started there. And the question that I asked myself was, how many towels do we need? And the reason that that question was really impactful was because I think a lot of times when we're looking at stuff, especially Americans, which I'm guessing most of your listeners are Americans, Mm -hmm. probably Mm -hmm. with all their needs met, many of them. Most of us don't look at anything we consume really from the perspective of need because most of us have what we need and more. So a lot Mm -hmm. of times we're looking from the perspective of how much can I afford to buy or how much can I fit in my space? Or even another question I would ask a lot, which is how could I best organize this stuff, which is often a question of how could I keep all my stuff in a way that looks nice and I can find it? But none of those questions really address how much we need. Need is a very different question. And so when I asked myself, how many towels do I need? It was really clear to me that the answer really was just two per person because we're the kind of family where we have one towel at a time. I'll use the same towel for a week. And I know everybody, some people might just be aghast at that. You know, some people are, you cannot use the same towel twice. And if you're that kind of person, two is not going to be enough for you, right? So it's important to recognize that just because I say that's the amount we need as a family, that's not going to be the answer for every single person out there. And that is okay. The amount that someone else might need is going to be different than the amount that I need. So it's an important question because it has you begin looking at the things you own from a very different perspective than the perspective that most consumer culture has us look at things, which is how much can we consume? How Mm. much can we afford? What's in style now? What do we need to get rid of that's no longer in style? Well, why don't you just buy a bigger house so then you can have more, bigger and better? So it's a very different perspective. And what's great about it, you can look at your towels this way. How many do you need? And then you can look at everything else that same way. How many pairs of shoes do you need? How many spatulas do you need? How many hammers do you need? You know, you can go through really all the things that you own and you can ask yourself, how much do I really need? And I want to be clear that I'm not advocating for a just utilitarian, bare bones, aesthetic lifestyle. I'm not recommending anyone become a monk and own nothing and renounce all their possessions. But I think that we all could do better by looking at our things from the perspective of need versus want or ability to consume. 
And what I found personally in my life, the whole reason that I ended up doing this and continued to do it was that when I looked from that perspective, it was very freeing. Because when you know how much you need and you know that you have what you need, it really alleviates all that excess noise that you might not even realize you have that's telling you, you need this to be successful. You need this to be beautiful. You need this to be professional. You need this to show your status. These voices that we're not always even aware are there when they're silent, you have this open space to think about much bigger ideas for your life. So that's the deeper philosophical oh, answer to it. the towel question. And a funny story that I will add to this. So yeah. my, my husband is in charge of washing the towels. We have a laundry schedule. I'm very organized. So he's, he's in charge of washing the towels. He's supposed to do it on Saturdays, but he doesn't always do that. And so he had let it go for like a few weeks. And I just don't say anything because I'm like, he'll do it when he wants to do it. Well, by the time he did it, we were pretty much out of towels because by that time people had replaced the towels. There's only 10 and there's five of us. I have 14 year old triplets. And he comes out of the shower. So he's put all the towels in the in the washer, but they're not gone to the dryer yet. He comes out of the shower and he's in his bathroom and he's dripping wet. He's like, we don't have any towels. I'm going to have to go down and get one of Rudy's towels. So he goes down and dries himself with the dog towel because that was all that he could use. So how many towels do you need also might depend on how often you do the laundry at your house and who's in charge of doing the laundry. So just a little warning or caveat for people there. Extra towels. They might be a want, they might be a need, but when they're all in the wash and you come out of the shower wet, it's definitely a need at that point, I would say. Yeah, if you don't want to dry yourself with your dog towel, make sure you've got enough. <laughs> well, one thing, Rose, you're talking about the towels and, and you talked about how towels are this thing that they're a very useful item. There's really not much beauty to a towel, but maybe when evaluating other things in our life, maybe they're not particularly useful, but they are beautiful or meaningful in some way. And I've heard you before kind of rate items along those two different spectrums or spectra. Is it useful? Is it beautiful? Can you dive into those two specific words a little bit more? Yeah, I got that criteria from William Morris, who was a 19th century interior designer. So once people had kind of gotten their basic needs met, they started thinking about how could I make my home more beautiful? And interior design became an industry. It wasn't always an industry. So this is the 1800s, and he says this quote that I think rings just as true today as it did then, which is, have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. And so the reason that I use those two criteria, useful and beautiful, really comes from that quote that was said well over 100 years ago. And so what I think is really key about it is he, he worded it as such that you know to be useful. And I think it's really important that we only know something is useful if we are using it. Because a lot of times we're keeping things because we think, oh, it could potentially be useful. Someday I'm going to use the panini maker. Someday right. I'm going to use the waffle maker. Someday I'm going to need all those extra towels that I bought on sale at Kohl's. I'm not using them now, but someday I might. They could be useful. It's really about knowing something to be useful because you actually use it. And then the second question is, or you believe it to be beautiful. And that's kind of going back to what I said earlier about, we're not really talking about just having the bare bones necessary for survival. We're talking about having space in our lives for the things that bring us joy, the things that we look at and it makes us feel good. So in my house, I have plenty of things that are not useful. I have paintings that my mom has done. I have pictures of my family. I have cards that my kids have given to me when they were little. They said, I love you, mama. Is any of this useful? 
No, not necessarily, not by the strict definition of useful, but it brings me great joy to behold these items or to hold them or to look at them or to read them. And I want to have space in my life for those things. And what happens sometimes, I think, is people think, well, everything is beautiful. Everything is special. And what happens is when we think every single thing is special is that nothing is special. It's kind of that if everything's a 10, nothing's a 10. Right. And so when we're simplifying our lives, specifically our possessions, we really want to think about what are the things that are truly beautiful and what are the things that are kind of just detracting from the beauty? Because all the extra stuff that you have actually decreases the value of the most important things that you have. So it's really more about curating, like a museum curates and they put out their very best things, not necessarily every single painting that any artist has ever done even a single artist, not every painting that artist has ever ever done. What are the most beautiful or the best ones? Those are the ones that we're going to display. And so you can kind of think about your home that way. You've got to have the useful things because you know them to be useful, but make space for the beautiful things that bring you great joy when you look at them. So that's really how I apply useful and beautiful. And I'd encourage your listeners, if they're interested in doing this, to start thinking about that when they look at things too. I like that museum example. It made me think there's a local museum or at least a art studio warehouse here in Rochester that on the one hand, it's, it is very neat. I think it's very neat. I've been there a couple times, but it's a little overwhelming. When I go there, I look around and a lot of it, at least to me, is, is junk. It's not so much art as it, it's junk. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much of it that it, it kind of all blends together. And it, it does, I think, detract from the experience. And the ability to contrast the true beauty from everything else that doesn't quite make it, having that ability to contrast, having that judgment is important. And it it does lead back to a personal finance topic when we think about spending money on things that are truly beautiful versus spending money on things that are just medium or or mediocre. And I I think, Rose, one of my repeating issues, we haven't quite touched on, on gifting yet, but when I think about spending money on stuff, I know you've talked about gifting before. I have amazing friends, loving family, and and once in a while, I've received gifts that, no offense to my friends and family, I have not needed one little bit. So I'm curious, how do you think I should handle these situations? And maybe at the same time, is there a way to be a better gift giver? Well, I think one thing we can all know is that those wonderful friends and family who have given us gifts we didn't want we have given them the exact same thing. We have given them stuff that they didn't want. This is the nature of gift giving. We are not mind readers. We're not fortune tellers. So we're going to give people gifts that they don't necessarily need or want. And with all our best intentions, we're just not always going to hit it out of the park with gifts. And that's just the way it goes. So when it comes to gifts in general, I have a couple rules that I tend to follow. And the first one is to ask for what you want. So in the event that it's a a birthday or a holiday where gifts will be exchanged and somebody asks you, what could I get you for the holidays? Or what I want to get you something for your anniversary or for your birthday. What would be something that I could get for you or for your child? If you have children, when you have children, you're actually asked that quite a lot more than as an adult. So what can I get for your kids? So if someone asks you that question, tell them what you want. I would really like a gift certificate to this local organic grocery store, or I would like a museum pass. You know, we're talking about museums. I'd like a pass to go to the museum, or maybe you want a donation to a charity. Really, what do you want? Or maybe you just want to spend time with this person and you say, I really want us right now to put something on the calendar, a day that we're going to go out to lunch together. And I want to go out to lunch with you and spend time with you. And that's what I want more than anything. Or maybe I want 
onesie pajamas that look like a leopard. If that's what you want, that's what you want, right? Ask for what you want. Be really clear about it. And then realize whoever asked you this and you told them, they're probably an adult and they get to make their own decisions. So they may not listen to your list or they might think, "Eh, I don't really want to buy them that, in which case that's fine. That's their decision. And they're going to give you what they want to give you anyway. So the second thing I always say is say thank you for what you get. So no matter what that person gives you, we're both Midwesterners or we live in the Midwest. We understand. Please and thank you. Say thank you for what you get, even if they gave you the leopard pajamas and you asked for a donation to, you know, save the animals. They took that as I'm going to get you pajamas that make you look like an animal. And you're like, this wasn't quite what I meant. You just say thank you because they put thought into it. They spent time and money on it. And what's great about that is once you've said thank you, it's like two magic words that now mean that's yours. You own it. Your obligation to the gift and the giver is done. At the moment of thank you, it, you own it. So now it's up to you. Is it, You can go back to the questions we asked earlier. Is it useful or beautiful? Are you going to wear those pajamas? Do you love them? Do they bring you joy? If so, great. Keep them, wear them, love them, and rock it out. If not, then you can decide, okay, what's the proper home for these? Am I going to give them away on a buy nothing page? Am I going to donate them? Am I going to give them to my friend who likes wild pajamas? I don't know. You get to decide what happens to them. But the proper thing is to say thank you to the person who sent you, who gave you the gift. And then if you can use it, great. If not, let it go. And so that's kind of how I manage gift giving. And I realize a lot of that's a little easier said than done because obviously there are people's feelings involved. But I generally think after practicing this for a while, and if you're open about your values around stuff, if you're a person like me who maybe has a whole blog and business about this, or maybe not, maybe you just talk about how you're pursuing a simpler lifestyle, people generally have an understanding that And usually they do come around to, you know, this is the kind of person who's probably not going to want a lot of physical possessions. And then your other question was about how to be a better gift giver to other people, right? Because we are gift givers and that's a tricky one, right? So I generally ask people what they would like, what would be helpful for you, what would be useful for you. And I try my best to find something that I think would be helpful or useful. I as a parent of three kids, have kind of moved toward gifts that allow experiences or time because I think they're just so much more meaningful. I mean, I have seen my kids get really excited about a toy the moment they open it up and two weeks later, it was sitting around and they never played with it ever again. And I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. well, that was really not very meaningful. I, I gave that gift, but it's not adding anything, you know, in terms of joy or value to their life and not to our relationship so when I give gifts, I, I try to think of things, especially to my children, that will increase the value of our relationship and our connectedness. So for my my boys, for example, last Christmas, I gave them tickets to go see the Cleveland Cavaliers play the Indiana Pacers in Indianapolis. And I had never been to a professional basketball game. I don't even really like sports. But we went to this professional basketball game. It was so cool. We had so much fun. We were, we were, got pretty close seats because it was their big Christmas cool. gift. Yeah. And it was really fun. So that was their Christmas present from me. So I think as I have kind of gone on this journey, I've started to think about what kinds of gifts really make a difference to me and to the giver. And my kids will tell you, and there's plenty of research to back this up as well, that the thing that makes people feel most grateful later, the things they spend money on that we feel gratitude about later are things that were experiences instead of stuff. 
And that is true based on scientific research that has been done. So when we think about giving gifts, we can think about, I'm going to spend money on a gift. How can I make this really valuable in the sense of this is going to be something that's going to make someone feel grateful or loved or cared about later? And we can try to give those gifts. And obviously, sometimes you got to buy a gift for your assistant or your boss. Okay. In which case, I recommend something maybe consumable that's not mm-hmm. going to add stuff, some local chocolates or teas or honey or something like that, that will not necessarily be a trinket that somebody has to dust or take care of or <laughs> quietly uh, eventually donate. So those are some of my general things on, on gift giving, which maybe as these holidays are coming up will be helpful to some of your listeners. Totally. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm so glad you you ended up mentioning that research about uh, experiences over material goods because that's exactly what my, my mind went to when you started talking about that Pacers-Cavaliers game. Another thing that I thought about is it is hard to, quote unquote, give the right gift if you aren't asking the recipient what they want. And I think of an anecdote where I, a few Christmases ago, I gave my father-in-law a book by an author named Jim Collins, who's a very famous kind of management author mm-hmm. about running good businesses and, and the, the history of effective businesses, that kind of thing. Because my father-in-law, he, he runs, he's the, the president of the firm that he works for. And I'm like, yeah, this, this is right up his alley. It's leadership. It's running a business. It's that kind of thing. It's like, well, my father-in-law, he's just not the biggest reader. Mm-hmm. So even though it was probably a book that he enjoyed, and I think he did flip through it, he'd rather kind of watch a, a one-hour documentary than, mm-hmm. than read that book. And it just wasn't that effective of a gift. Even though I put thought into it, even though I wanted to make sure it was unique to him, it's just, it's hard to give the best gifts. And I like the idea of just asking that question. Yeah. Yeah. And another way of thinking about it is I often think of gifts as vehicles for our love and goodwill. So really the book was just a vehicle to your father-in-law to say, hey, I, I care about you and I thought about you and I love you. And, and, and the book itself doesn't matter. It could have been a book. It could have been a sweater. It could have been tickets mm-hmm. to a Pacers game or whatever. It really doesn't matter. It is, you know, the thought that counts when it comes down to it. The, the gift itself sometimes carries the love and goodwill to us. And what I always say is you can keep the love and the goodwill and let the object go because it was just the messenger to bring that to you. And now you've received it, love and goodwill. We can keep as much as we want and we don't have to keep every book and every coffee mug and every t-shirt. Here's a quick ad and then we'll get back to the show. Serious question. Why do podcasters constantly ask for ratings and reviews? Yes, they do help highlight our shows to new listeners. They help strangers find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's totally true and a good reason to ask for ratings and reviews. But I have something more important, at least more important to me. I want to know if you like this stuff. I want to know if you like my podcast episodes, my monologues, my guests, the information I share with you and the stories I tell. I want to improve and make your listening more enjoyable in the process. So yeah. I would love to read your reviews. And sure, if you throw a rating in there too, that's great. If you like what I'm doing, please share it with me. It's such a great feeling to read your feedback. I'd love to read your review or see a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you. So that that covers a lot of the physical clutter. At least it covers some of the topic of physical clutter. I think I've seen Rose that you've, you've written before about mental clutter and, and a connection between routines and mental clutter. Can you describe a little bit of of some of your thoughts on that topic? 
Yeah, so mental clutter is trickier than physical clutter because physical clutter, if you had a cluttered closet, you could just go in one day and I'm going to take out all the things I don't use and love and donate and trash and organize and it looks great. It'll stay that way for a while, maybe quite a while. But in our minds, you know, negative thought patterns, negative habits, um, ways we talk to ourselves or patterns that we get into when people say things to us or we're in certain situations, those can be much trickier to let go of, but they are also cluttered because they're clouding us or keeping us from living our best life. And so one of the things that I have found to be most helpful is to just begin to notice when those happen. And it can be really tricky and none of us are ever going to catch it every single time. But let's say, for example, every time you talk to your brother, he says something that makes you kind of feel a little bit bad about yourself. And it's not in a direct way, but Maybe he's the older brother, and so he's always saying something that makes you feel like, oh, he's right, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't, or I shouldn't try that. And you might notice like, oh, this is, this is a pattern that every time that I talk to this person, they say something, and it kind of like makes me feel a little bit put down. So mm-hmm. it's just something that you can notice, and then maybe going into those situations again, you can just be aware of it. And what's kind of powerful about mental clutter is we think, oh, let's just get rid of it. That's really hard, but what's easier and also equally as effective is just to notice that that pattern is happening. If every time you interact with someone, you start to feel bad about yourself or even something like I, if you scroll on social media a lot, and and I, I know this about my own self, which is why I don't scroll on social media very often. Instagram will make me feel bad about myself. I'll start to feel, oh, I'm not good enough or my business isn't good enough. Or I'm not a good enough parent, whatever, whatever, right? You attach your own not good enough to that. That happens. And so Becoming aware while scrolling, I'm feeling bad right now. I could keep scrolling after that, but I'm much more likely to choose to do something else when I become aware that this is what's going on inside of me right now, because it creates that little bit of pause that gives us the opportunity to make a choice. So routines, patterns, like that's kind of what I generally associate with mental clutter. It's the things Mm. that that happen over and over again. And a lot of them are the same ones from when we were kids. Not to like get deep into psychology here or anything. I was in college and I had a a journal that I'd kept since I was in second grade. Wow. And I didn't, it wasn't like I wrote in it every single day, you know, but I ended up going back through and rereading some of the things I'd written in second grade. And I had this aha moment where I realized, oh my gosh, I have the same problems that I had in second grade where I'm worried that people won't like me, or Mm -hmm. I'm worried that I'm not good enough, or I'm worried that so-and-so doesn't think that I'm cool. Those are the same problems that I could even be having today, right? I worry that people won't like me, or they don't think I'm good enough, or they don't think I'm cool. A lot of these things are things we were so used to them, that, that they become what we think of is the truth, or they become so normal. And that's that power of just, oh, noticing that this is what I'm thinking. And, and that really weakens it. I think it's sort of like in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy sees the man behind the curtain. The great and powerful Oz is really scary, but when you realize it's just a man behind the curtain, you're suddenly like, oh, that's not what I thought it was. So the noticing of what's going on, it's a practice. It's something that I practice almost daily. Things like meditation and so forth can be helpful. I'm not a great meditator. I will admit that. <laughs> I don't like to sit still and be quiet and hum to myself, whatever. But it's really training your mind to notice when things are getting cluttered. And usually you can tell because there's often physical things that happen to you. Like your heart will start racing. You'll start to feel anxious. You'll feel like I can't get everything done. There's so much to do or whatever your 
general anxiety patterns are, that's usually when you can tell that mental clutter is happening. Yeah, that's interesting. I was wondering if that M word meditation would come up only because I, I, like you, I, I think I'm the most, one of the most amateur meditators out there. But when I've been practicing before and when I've kind of gotten into a good meditation habit, one of the patterns I noticed from the meditation commentator, whoever the person is who's kind of talking me through the meditation mm-hmm. in my app is they, they tell you things like pay attention to your thoughts mm-hmm. and where are those thoughts coming from? And why are, you, why are you even thinking the thing that you're thinking right now? It's such a strange question to ask, but until someone's asked you that question, most people are blissfully unaware. We just assume that thoughts randomly pop into our heads, kind of completely out of our control, and therefore whatever feelings or actions we take based on those thoughts, again, it's, it's not in our control. I got angry, I, I threw the something across the room, and I yelled. That that's not me. That's just that's just my thoughts. And it's like, yeah. well, hold on a second. Like, if you really try to slow things down and if you really pay attention to what's going on in your head, you'll realize that a lot of that was a choice. Maybe it felt a little subconscious, but it was a choice somewhere within your mental clutter. And if you practice organizing some of those thoughts a little bit better, it takes some time. It's not easy to do because it's not tangible. It's in your head. <laughs> but if you practice these things, in the long run, you'll you'll see some net benefit. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that you shared that. It is hard, and it yeah. it's also something that I think if you've gone down this road a little bit, sometimes you can feel like you're failing at it because you'll find yourself doing the same pattern that you used to do. Like, oh, I thought I was better. I thought I was over my self esteem issues with this person. And and the thing is, it's just it's all practice, which is I think why mm-hmm. people call it a meditation practice. If I ever met anyone who said they were a meditation master, I would pro- that's a big red flag to me that I probably don't want to listen to that person because right. anyone who practices meditation is a practitioner. Even the people who've been doing it for years and years and years are still practicing. I've heard it described as training a puppy. If you've ever tried to train a puppy, they kind of, you know, they're hard to train. They get distracted and they go off here. And totally. You, you gently try to pull them back. And now we're going to practice sitting and they'll sit for a little bit and they'll kind of wander off. And the next day you thought you made progress and they're back to peeing on the floor again. You're like, oh, uh-huh. I thought we worked on this. And so our minds are kind of like a perpetual puppy that we're always yeah. training, but they do eventually grow maybe into an adolescent dog at some point in time. But yeah, it's a continual thing. It's the, kind of the next level, which is actually why. I really recommend if people are interested in this journey that you start with the physical things because they naturally, as you create that open physical space, it's so tangible, it's so black and white, it's so before and after. It's going to create the mental space for you to start doing that work inside and it makes that inside work easier. I feel like people don't always see that there's a connection to these two things. But starting with the physical space is going to help you delve into the mental space because they're very much connected. And and I know that because generally when I started my business, I used to go to people's homes in person and we would clear out closets physically side by side. And the thing people always said to me when I left was the same, whether this person lived in this sort of palatial residence or a studio apartment, they would say, I feel so much better. Mm. And so I started to notice that the underlying similarity was the feeling people had in an open, clear space. So creating open, clear physical space will help you start to create open, clear mental space, which makes it way easier to examine some of the patterns that are going on, the scripts that are running in the background of that mental space that most of us aren't aware of. 
Right. And and it's, it's funny, some of those scripts that you talked about, obviously, I know a lot of them are, they have to do with relationships and how we see ourselves in the world and, and some of that emotional side. I mean, there is, we can tie this back to personal finance. There's a spending script. Oh, yeah. And and, and some of the people who I've talked about before, when you kind of pull back and you say, well, what, what were you thinking? I'm just curious. What were you thinking when you made that decision to buy that thing that you now regret? I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Or Or it's almost like, it's almost like they were in some sort of it's like asking someone who's addicted to chocolate chip cookies, like, why Why did you eat the whole bag of Chips Ahoy? Like, I don't know. It was just in front of me and I went for it. It's, yeah. it's, these, it's these old, I don't want to say reptilian, but it's these mm-hmm. old scripts somewhere in deep within our brain that just are repeat, repeat, repeat. And maybe we get some little high out of it or whatever it might be. I'm not a psychologist, even though I pretend to be one on podcasts, but- <laughs> Suffice to Me say, <laughs> if you, if you, you know, sometimes it's if you're aware of the script when it starts to play, you can mm-hmm. cut it off before it gets to the the crescendo where you do something that you'll later regret. Yeah, it's that awareness. I read this book. I don't know if you ever read anything by Eckhart Tolle. So I know exactly who he is. I, I haven't read okay. his books though. His book, okay. I have it, A New Earth, one of the few books I own. But he talked about this thing. He called it watching the thinker, hmm. and that was the first time that I realized you could watch yourself think. The consciousness that's thinking and the consciousness watching you think are not the same. Hmm. And so sometimes, <laughs> isn't that kind of wild? It is, it And is. I remember reading this, This was, and this what kind of coincided with the decluttering journey. I started reading this book and I realized, oh my gosh, the things that I'm thinking aren't necessarily me. I can watch myself thinking that about myself. So who's watching me? That's really me. That's my consciousness. And it was wild. And just that realization changes the way you show up in spaces, changes the way you interact with people. I felt it immediately makes you calmer because you realize you're not at the mercy of these incessant thoughts. And and those are brief moments. There's these like little brief moments of lightness. And then you go back to your daily life and you're like, I got to do all these things. And oh my gosh, I'm behind on email. That book for me really started me on the the journey of starting to clear the mental clutter, even though I didn't realize it at the time that that's what I was doing. But that's one that I re- returned to some of those concepts that I learned in that book. That is so cool. At this point, I know that you're on a, on a clock and this, I mean, this has been an awesome 30 minutes. And even though there are other questions I had written down, honestly, like I think we're at an awesome point. And if, unless there's anything that I missed that you really want to hit on, yeah, I okay, love the direction cool. that we took here. Kind <laughs> okay. of, And I think it's important for people to realize, like, start with the physical, and that's important, and that matters. And that's going to take you to places you did not imagine. Mental clutter, financial clutter, relationship clutter, career clutter, health and wellness clutter, mm, things mm-hmm. that you might not have even thought of as clutter in your life. Once you start clearing it, you're going to see it in all these other areas of your life, and then you can clear it in those other places. This is still work that I do. I've been doing this for 10 years and I'm still finding myself in the process of, okay, I have to let go of that. I'm done with it. I need to let it go. And it's no longer about my coffee cups anymore, but it's about these deeper things that you and I've been getting into in this second half of the conversation. So I appreciate you taking us there. That's cool, Rose. Well, well, you're welcome. And and thank you for coming on. If if listeners want to get a hold of you, Rose, if they want to check out that TEDx talk, if they want to read your blog, how can they find you? The best place to go would be my website, which is roselounsberry.com. And for people listening, that's Rose Lounsbury is L-O-U-N-S-B-U-R-Y. 
It's like berry a bone, not strawberry. <laughs> Go to my website. You'll have links to all my social media, my blog posts. You can watch my TEDx and all the good stuff there. Awesome. And we will throw those links into the show notes. Rose Lounsbury, thank you for coming on to the Best Interest Podcast. Oh, thanks, Jesse. It's been awesome. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.